three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome back to Nuclear Knowledge, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we offer mini lectures on topics of importance. Now, for today's Nuclear Knowledge, I want to talk about an idea that I've had with a colleague of mine, and that's this idea of fusing deterrence. It's integrating leaders across both Special Operations Command and the nuclear enterprise. Now, this isn't a common thing people talk about, but it's something I want to posit to you today. Now, let me get started. So after World War II, the United States military disbanded units engaged in sabotage, guerrilla warfare, and clandestine operations. These were the very out-of-the-box thinkers that proved highly successful during World War II. Then after more than a decade, President Kennedy identified an irregular warfare gap and took action to ensure that the military developed and maintained a special operations capability. This took place at a time when the Cold War was in full swing and the nuclear arms race was the central focus. The irregular warfare of special operations was forced to the margins as the United States built a massive nuclear arsenal. After all, nuclear war with the Soviets appeared imminent. Now, fortunately, the Cold War ended as it began, and neither a nuclear holocaust nor a Russian invasion of Europe occurred. Now, near the end of the Cold War, Congress passed the Goldwater-Nichols Act, which sought to force the services to integrate their approaches to warfare. It also authorized the establishment of U.S. Special Operations Command, SOCOM. Now, the creation of SOCOM was in response to the failure of Operation Eagle Claw, the American effort to rescue hostages from Tehran. Now, over the next three decades, SOCOM personnel developed a comprehensive plans, standard operating procedures, as well as collecting immense amounts of critical data, trends, lessons learned to retain the competitive advantage at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels in fighting against America's adversaries. Now, as the era of countering violent extremism You know, as that era concluded, a new direction for the United States and the military is, you know, it's now emerging. Great power competition. Now, with the nuclear enterprise finally receiving some due attention and funding, it is also time to bring military special operations into the discussion as they shift their focus from violent Islamic fundamentalism to Russia, China, North Korea, and their roles in great power competition. Now, given the strength of special operations and SOCOM leadership's effort to move from 
a supported to a supporting role, there's a significant opportunity to demonstrate special operations value in a still ill-defined integrated deterrence. Now, the question, are the nation's military leaders prepared to construct a fully integrated military strategy that effectively integrates cross-domain deterrence with whole-of-government capabilities? That's the question. Now, the, the jury's still out. Now, while it seems unlikely that special operations units would face a similar fate today that their World War II predecessors faced, and that's absorption into the conventional forces, relegating them to counterterrorism missions or other ill-defined supporting roles would be a mistake. What is perhaps a more useful approach is to take the lessons learned and best practices of special operations it's that 20 years of countering violent extremism and then apply that to integrated deterrence and the emerging tripolar nuclear competition between the United States, Russia, and then potentially North Korea. Now, this new era of competition, let's call it that, will only be won through innovative programs, outside the box thinking, and fully integrating cross-functional problem solvers, which is a strength of Special Operations Command. Now, this problem begins by asking how are barriers, assumptions, and biases within special operations and nuclear deterrence operations how, within these two communities, how are they inhibiting their mid- and senior-level professionals from actively integrating and deliberately leveraging previously stovepiped expertise to construct and employ a fully integrated military deterrence strategy. Admittedly, this question sounds like it came straight from an Army training course. But the point is clear. Unidentified barriers, biases, and assumptions make any successful cultural integration between the special operations and the nuclear communities, extremely difficult. After all, these are two of the least understood and most reclusive military communities. Some of the perceived differences between the two communities are illustrative. One, special operations missions are mostly tactical, but often have strategic implications, whereas Operations in the nuclear world are always strategic. Two, special operators work in the gray zone and have a, quote, get it done at any cost, cowboy, mentality. Whereas nuclear operations strictly follow technical orders, checklists, and are, quote, safe, secure, and effective robots. That's, you know, something people have said in the past. Now, while these perceptions are only partially correct, both communities live in a world where mission failure is not an option. Integrating the two communities that operate on opposite sides of a linear warfighting spectrum might seem difficult. But what if Western linear thinking is the root cause of this difficulty and inhibits 
the special operations and nuclear operations communities from integrating. Perhaps integration should be reframed along an eastern circular infinite spectrum. I'm sure you folks have heard of that. Look at through that lens. Now, if special operations and nuclear deterrence operations are placed on a spectrum of conflict, it is easy to think they are at opposite ends of that spectrum. However, if you take an Eastern view that employs a circular infinite spectrum, it is possible to see the line bend inward with one end touching the other. In short, it is possible to integrate both approaches to warfare as a means of achieving integrated deterrence. Given the varying interests of our adversaries, credible deterrence will look different to China than it does to Russia or North Korea. Integrating deterrence is not a prefabricated, one-size-fits-all solution. Deterrence tactics without a deterrent strategy are useless. So understanding the complexities of the problem set is critical, and it's exceedingly difficult. U.S. Strategic Command alone cannot achieve this objective because it is only one piece of the deterrence puzzle. Special operations, they conduct irregular warfare using the overarching doctrinal tenets of deter, assure, dissuade, deny, and strike. Nuclear operations doctrinal tenets are the same. The main difference lies in that special operations activities are a strategic deterrence microcosm, and nuclear operations activities are a macrocosm. Though traditionally perceived to operate on different ends of the linear warfighting spectrum, each prosecutes military operations through the same doctrinal lens. Now, all of this is to say that it's time special operations and nuclear operations join forces as a means of operationalizing meaningful integrated deterrence that is more effective and helps the United States deter its adversaries. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining us on this episode of Nuclear Knowledge. We hope to have you on the next episode. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.